0: John 14, verse 31. I'd intended to deal with all five of these verses at the end of John in one sermon, but there has been too much gold here, and so I believe this is our fifth sermon, but the final one on John 14, before we move into the 15th chapter. And you will recall that our Lord is giving His disciples instructions before... He goes to the cross. This is the last night of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are five chapters given to this evening, the last night before our Lord was crucified. And these five chapters represent the longest amount of scripture given to the smallest amount of time in the Bible. That is, this last evening is about 25% of the whole book of John. John. And God wanted us to understand it at length, more so than any of the other nights that our Lord spent. Even more information is given about this evening than about the crucifixion. So we began in chapter 13, and we saw, as we're summarizing, the first word of the gospel. And that was humility in John chapter 13, when our Lord washed the feet of the disciples And then he closed that chapter by rebuking Peter. Peter said, all men will leave you, but I will not leave you. And Jesus rebukes his spiritual pride. That's John chapter 13. The first word of the gospel is humility. And if you have not been laid low by your sin and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are no Christian. You don't even pass grade R. But if you've understood your sin and how low you are, then you have entered at the first door. That's chapter 13. What is the main point of chapter 14? Matthew Henry says it's comfort. I would say it's belief in Christ. John 14, verse 1, begins with faith. Not only faith in God, but also faith in Christ Jesus. He's going to repeat that word throughout John chapter 14, and this morning you will see it. In verse 31, The last words he utters before he says, arise, let us leave from here, is a drawing of attention to himself and his great work. That is, it's it's an inspiration to faith. John chapter 14 could be summarized as faith in Christ. If John 13 is humility, John 14 is faith. Our Lord says in John chapter 14, verse 31, Arise, let us go. Who was he speaking to? And what was he telling them to do? Who was he speaking to? And he said, Arise, let us go. His disciples, the eleven, because Judas had already been filled with Satan. Satan. So he and the 11 disciples, he tells them, arise and let us go. Go where? Last week we studied, the ruler of this world is coming. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the true man because he is going to meet the problem. Godly masculinity runs to the problem, not away from the problem. Christian manhood says, if there's a difficulty, I'm going to meet it head on. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm going to meet the problem and solve it. And our Lord is the perfect example of this in those closing words in verse 31. Get up. Let us go. And I will lead the way. I'm standing already. Don't you see? Stand with me and go. But where are we going? We're going to meet the ruler of this world. But you've already told us he's the ruler of this world. I'm not afraid of that one who calls himself the God of this world. But you've already told us that you're going away and we won't see you. What's going to happen in this fight? Come. Come and welcome. And watch what I will do. But... How can we go? It's dark. It's late. We already know in John chapter 12, they're attacking you. They want to kill you. Come, arise. Let's go. He's full of courage, zeal, and initiative. Let's go. Does something in your heart want to go with those disciples? Would you want to walk with them? As long as you were behind your captain, you knew he was going to take all the ammunition, all the artillery. Would you like to go and watch with him? Because this is what he calls them to do. He calls them to go out against the ruler of this world. And he's going to set here the clearest opposition between two sides. You see that at the end of verse 30. Look at that phrase in verse 30. The ruler of this world comes and has nothing in me. Does your Bible say have no claim on me? Does your Bible say has no hold on me? The literal translation is he has nothing in me. It's an interpretation to say he has no just claim to attack me. He hates me and is going to attack me, but he has no just way to attack me. I think rather the meaning here when our Lord says he has nothing in me is a clear distinction of the lines. He's saying there are sheep and there are? There are children of God and children of? There is the light and there is the? There is God and there is? There is heaven and there is? That has been his mode of teaching through all his earthly ministry. And here at the end, before they crucify him, he says, the ruler of this world is coming and he is complete opposite from me. We are entirely different. What Cornelius Van Til called the antithesis. What he means by that is a great war. He's teaching here in verse 30, there is a spiritual war and it is fought between God and Satan, Christ and and the ruler of the world. And I'm going out. Arise. Let us go and meet him. You need to know in your Christian life that there is no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or you do what? Drink. Have you forgotten that word? What does it mean to drink? It means to pick up, open your mouth, swallow that water. Is it a common activity or an uncommon activity? Very common, Very common, right? Even if you drink, do it like a Christian to the glory of God. There's a Christian way to drink. There's a Christian way to eat. Jesus says, Paul says by there, don't think there's anything neutral. You can't even put on your shoes. In a neutral way. It's a Christian way or an unchristian way. There's a Christian way to do everything. Which is what our Lord taught in Luke 11 verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. There's two options here. You either stand on my side or you're an enemy. Well, but, but no you don't understand. I'm not a child of Satan. But I'm not yet born again. I'm just thinking about this. I'm neutral. There is no neutrality. That was the great teaching of that theologian that I just mentioned, Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til's great contribution to Christian theology was to popularize and to clarify and to explain there is nothing neutral. Nothing. Not wood. Not trees. Not jobs. Not political parties. Nothing is neutral. It either glorifies God or it dishonors God. And with all that as my introduction, I want to show you now what our Lord Jesus does. He tells them, get up, come with me and watch. I want you to be witnesses to what I'm going to show you. What is he going to show them? How is he going to respond to this ruler who's coming? And We mentioned last week in Luke 22, verse 53, this is your hour, the power of darkness. Jesus knew Satan's hour is coming His hour for his highest point of domination is coming. And I'm going to go slay that lion. I'm going to go kill that dragon. What will he do? And the answer is, he will obey all that the Father commanded him. This morning, I would like to preach to you on the subject of Satan overthrown by obedience. And we will examine it under three headings, doing something that I've probably not done for 10 years. My three points this morning are all starting with the same letter. Christ's obedience was public. He did it so that the world would know. You'll see that in verse 31. Christ's obedience was precise. He did exactly as the Father commanded him. And Christ's obedience was proactive. He didn't wait for Satan to start. He went and charged at the enemy. Arise, let us go from here. Let us confront him before his time begins. Now let me in these next few moments attempt to explain to you those three Ps. It's a public obedience. It's a precise obedience It is a proactive obedience. And my goal in this sermon is this. My goal is to set Christ and his obedience in front of your eyes in such a way that you will say, That's my king. That's my lord. That's my head. That's my husband. If he would take me, I would want to be with him. My goal is to inspire in you love and hope and confidence and joy in Jesus Christ. There is a kind of Christianity that's not really Christian. Or if so, it is a truncated, bare bones, dying Christianity. And it says, every time you read the Bible, you must ask yourself, how can it affect me immediately? The answer is here, this is Jesus who's doing something by himself without you. And the point of verse 31 is for you to say, what did he do? So this morning, let us give our minds to what he did. And I hope that with God's help and answer to our prayers, I hope that someone here will hear this and say, I get it. I get it. He obeyed for me. He obeyed publicly and precisely and proactively on my behalf. I get it. And I hope you would say, I want to say that publicly. I hope that you would say, even as we close, as we meet in the next service, you would say, I'm ready to join the church. I'm ready for everyone to know Christ's obedience was done for me. I stand with him and trust in him and rest in him. Last week we saw a brother join. Why not you? The majority of people here are not church members. If you listen to this obedience if you see what Christ did and find it compelling, then may He draw you today. His public obedience. Uh, Look in verse 31. So that the world may know. He does this obedience. First of all, so that there would be knowledge. Christ wants us to be certain He wants us to possess real knowledge. Buddhism says that this world and this life are illusions. Buddhism, a very large religion in China and in the Oriental countries. And Buddhism says this world and this life are illusions. Knowledge is illusory. You can't really put your foot down firmly and say this is absolute truth because knowledge is illusory. And of course, what should you say to that? Is it really true that knowledge is illusory Buddhism says knowledge is not possible Hinduism with nearly a billion Hindus in the Indian subcontinent Hinduism says you cannot know a truth that is true for all people at all times because there are 330 million spirits or gods or deities and every one of them has a kind of perspective on truth and they have their own way to talk And so you can have your own truth, Um Yohan. And you can have your own truth, little Colin. And you can have your own truth, Mia Alex. That's what Hinduism would say. You can't have truth in that. Which is why all of those countries were backward until capitalism came, which was inspired by Christianity. Because how can you possibly grow and have success if you can't even have firm knowledge? African traditional religion and all animism teaches that knowledge is not possible. How does African traditional religion teach that knowledge is not possible? Because according to African traditional religion, all the world is governed by what? Spirits. How many? One or many? Many, many spirits. In fact, every single person who's died has become a what? A spirit. A shikwembu. A mudzimu, A mudimu. Every single spirit who's died has become that God. So now, if that little God comes close to you, then his, quote, truth will prevail. And if this God comes to you, then you have to follow his truth. So maybe that God thinks that 2 plus 2 is 4, but that one over there that's going to come on Thursday, maybe he thinks 2 plus 2 is 5. Why is it that those demons had bound this continent so we couldn't even write our names until Christianity came? It was Christianity that allowed us to write our names. Why? Because those demons did not even allow that kind of knowledge. And when we attack this, we attack with every fiber of our being, the false religion and the demons. We love the people and have great pity and love for them. I'll give my blood every drop for every. African that I can lead to Jesus but I will fight to the death to throw down the false doctrines of those demons there ought to be hatred in every black soul for the demons that held down your forefathers and took them to a devil's hell and if I talk this way against the religion there should be shouts of amen for every black soul who loves the truth and loves Jesus Christ because we want to see people converted and we don't want to see our people bound like animals which is exactly what the demons have done for all people of all times until this book came and changed it. Knowledge is not possible, but Christ says in verse 31, I want you to know. In fact, I want the whole world. I want public education. Jesus is the first public educator. I want the whole world to have knowledge. Animism binds the people in South America. Animism binds the people in Australia, uh, the Aborigines, and the people in Papua New Guinea. Animism binds the people in the islands of Indonesia. Animism binds the people of China, even, and of Mongolia. It is, by some accounts, the largest religion in the world. That Summary that I just gave of African traditional religion is held by a great many people groups spreading around the world In fact, I've told you this before J. Merle d'Abonnier The Protestant historian records in his first chapter of his history of the Reformation in England. He records that the white people in Britain had a religion very similar to African traditional religion Before the Bible came. Well, why not? Most people in the world did believe in foolish and backward religions because that's what Satan wanted them. But Christ came to teach. He came so the whole world would be set free from the chains of ignorance. But what does he want to teach? Or who does he want to teach? Tell me in verse 31, who is he teaching? He wants to teach the world. He wants to teach something to the entire world. World. Now you'll recall that previously in the Gospels, Jesus said when he healed someone, don't tell anyone. Why did he do that? Perhaps because he did not want the hour of his death to come too quickly. He knew there is a time appointed me before the foundation of the world. I will die at that time. And I'm not going to spread around yet. I'm beginning my ministry and I'm not going to spread up opposition, stir up opposition. But now that time is over. John 12, verse 32 happens on Sunday, probably on Sunday, before he is crucified. Just seven days before he's going to rise from the dead, Jesus said in John 12, 32, If I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all peoples to me. He says the same thing right here in John chapter 14, just a few days later. When he says, I want the whole world. To know, I want public education. Acts twenty six, verse twenty six. Paul tells Agrippa, Agrippa, you know about these things. These things were not done in a corner. They weren't hidden. We announced this. Ezekiel thirty three, eleven. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And this is why he said, arise, let us go. I want witnesses. I want you to see what happened. I want you to see what happened when I'm arrested. I want you to see what happened in the trial. I want you to see what happened when I'm at Golgotha, lifted up before all men. I want you to see it. And then Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where else? Farthest parts of the world, even to South Africa. I want you to go to every place and I want the world to know how I met and fought with the ruler of this world. And that's why 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, we're reading 1 Timothy over and over this month. 1 Timothy two verse four. he would have all men to be saved. The mark of a mature Christian and the mark of a mature Christian church is the degree to which you care for the conversion of the world. The degree to which you care that the world know this, that Jesus said, I'm doing this so that the world would know. Now ask yourself right now, how many thoughts have you given this week for the world to know? If you are a believer, perhaps you need to repent. Because Jesus does this. He stands up. He takes his sword. He's going to fight with that dragon. And he's doing it for this purpose. So that the world will know something. And if you're not involved in his system of education or even concerned about it, there's, that is a sin. God grant that we might all care that the world would know. And I would bring this last item to your attention before I move on to the second P. Christianity is now clearly the one true religion. What does he want the world to know? Look at verse 31 and tell me. What does he want the world to know? He wants the world to know the degree and manner in which he loves who? What is the first great commandment? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Friends, that commandment enough is enough to send us to hell because you have not loved God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You've loved your little babies better than you've loved God. Isn't that true? Worse yet, you have loved yourself more than you've loved God. You have loved sleep more than you've loved God. Isn't that true? We have loved our own reputation. We don't want to speak in front of people. We've loved our own comfort more than we have loved God. Let me ask, have you loved God perfectly for even one hour, even 60 minutes of your life? In, an hour, in a week, there's 168 hours. How many hours... In a year. How many hours have you been alive? Has there even been one hour of your life. From birth to now. When you have loved God with all your heart. All your soul. All your mind. And all your strength. You stand guilty. And that's why you need him as a priest. We're memorizing these verses in Hebrews. And this morning I reviewed them all. And thought. What a savior. I need him. I haven't loved him correctly at all in my life. And look what he does. He wants the world to know. Watch me. Let 7 billion people try to find a fault. And you can't find a fault in his love. Your wife can find a fault in your love for Jesus. Just like that. But if 7 billion people watch Jesus and read his life, if they walk with him and, and sleep in the house he sleeps in and wake up and eat dinner with him, if they walk on the roads with him, they can't find one, not even a small thing. And perhaps that's why the ESV translates it, the, the rule of this world comes and has no claim on me because I want the world to know that I love the Father perfectly. That may be the, the reason for their interpretation there in verse 30. But regardless, Christ loved the Father better than you. He did it. And that proves that he's the leader of the one true religion. Because Muhammad didn't do that. Even the Quran admits that Muhammad sinned. Buddha sinned. Krishna, the leader of the Hindu religion, sinned. Everyone sinned except this one. He loves the father. He takes the whole law and bottles it up in one statement. Love God. I'll do that. That is no problem for me. Because I and the Father are one and I always do the things that please the Father. He is one who says, I can do that. I have obeyed him in my life and now in my death. I will not stop. I will obey everything. And that leads us to our next point. He will obey precisely. Look in verse 31. So that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Or, I do just as the Father commanded me. Now, if you again have an ESV, and I think that's probably the most popular translation here. If you have an ESV, there, are, there is one clear word in the text that means just as, or exactly, or precisely, or in this way. And the New American Standard gets it exactly right with the word Exactly. Or in the New King James, it's just as. I do just as. I do exactly. I do precisely. I follow thusly. In fact, the word is usually translated as thus. The, the ESV put in the word as. I do as the Father commanded me. But that's, it really needs to be more specific. He's doing every line of the Father's commandment. And this may be the most glorious part of the message. The most glorious part of the revelation. He does exactly and precisely as the Father gave Him commandment. How so? I would draw your attention to the fact that the command of the Father means everything that the Father and the Son agreed upon before the foundation of the world. Get ready. Follow me. Don't, this is not a church to sleep in. We want you to learn. We believe you have minds. We believe you can learn and honor God with your minds. Before the world was created, who was there? Father, Son, and And these three are one. And there was no time where one event followed the next. All was now to them. There was no past, present, and future. Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed the most perfect flow of constant communion where the Son constantly enjoyed the Father's supply. And the the Father constantly enjoyed the Son's beauties. And the Spirit enjoyed the Father and the Son. And it was perfectly mutual. Everything was as it should have been. And somehow, in the divine mind, they planned. That's a word straight from Acts 2, verse 23. They planned God's predetermined plan. Somehow they planned. How did they plan if there's not one event following another? Ask them when you go to heaven. Somehow they planned. And they planned that they would create the world so that the Father, Son, and Spirit would be glorified. And they planned along with this creation to allow sin to come into the world. Why? Because otherwise no one would know what grace is. We, none of us would name our children grace. God planned between Father, Son, and Spirit to make the world and then to allow sin to come and they allowed a great part of the world to be corrupted and they allowed this evil spirit to rule this world and to be the God of this world and be a lion ravaging the world. They allowed this evil spirit to dominate so much so that C.S. Lewis calls it the silent planet as if all of the angels Rule the heavens. But down here on earth alone, it's silent because the angels are longing to look into it and can't get inside earth because the demons are there. And God allowed all of it in the eternal councils, in the plan before the foundation of the world. Why? He allowed it so that when his son comes, he would be the lamb slain from what point in time? Before the ages began. First Peter 1. Verse 20. God planned all of that and more. Because Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, being predestinated according to his glorious plan, which he purposed in Christ before the world. That is, he also chose his people. He chose his sheep. And he had a council and a plan. He had it all arranged. And now, our Lord Jesus comes and says... I'm going to do exactly according to the commandment. We can call that, listen, to, listen now, and we'll summarize it with this. We can call that the decree of God. Decree means a statement of what will happen. This will happen. God has a decree. Before the world was formed, the Father, Son, and Spirit agreed. They made a decree. They said, this will happen. And it's happening. And the Son now says, I'm going to do all that was decreed or commanded. I'm going to fulfill it. And we have a name for this decree. We have a name for this command. Can anyone tell me what the name is? If you've read Luke chapter 22, the upper room discourse that parallels this, you'll know it. I've referred to it a number of times in the series. What is the name for God's command or God's decree? What is the name for this great agreement made between the Father, Son, and Spirit? The new covenant. That's the name. He has a new covenant, an agreement, an arrangement. What is this arrangement? It's that the father will give a people to the son and the son will die for those people and save them completely. And even if they're trapped in the poorest place in South Africa, he's going to send someone right to that poor place and get those people. And even if they speak a different language, he's going to make his servant learn that language. And even if it's a small child, he's going to make sure that child's converted. And even if it's Venda or Tsonga or Sutu or Shona or Zulu, it doesn't matter where. He's got his people. They're in the covenant. And he says, I'm going to do this. And the son says, I will die for them. And the spirit says, I will take that death and I will apply it to them. And I'm going to work this out so that in the ages to come, there will be an uncountable number. Remember that, an uncountable number of believers. Don't think he's just going to save one or two. He's going to save someday, in some way, I believe in the future millennium, he's going to save such a great number that we will look back and say, there's more in heaven than in hell. And we will say to God be glory, great things he has done. And he's doing it all right here to every line of the covenant. He's not going to leave one thing undone. So when the the son said, I will do exactly what the father told me to do, what was he agreeing to do? Let me give you 12 weights that the son carried when he did all that the father commanded. 12 weights. Number one, he must become man. That's nothing to you because you're a man. But what if you had no beginning and no ending? What if you did not live where one event followed the next, where one day followed the next? And what if you had to constrain yourself and allow yourself to be tied up in an existence where one day followed the next. That's what we studied in Hebrews 2.14. In our memory verse. As the children take part in flesh and blood. He also took part in flesh and blood. So that he might overthrow the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 He must endure sinners and temptations. It is nothing to you to endure sinners and temptations. But imagine if you were so pure that your eyes couldn't even look at sin. Habakkuk 1.13. He must endure sinners and temptations. He must subject himself to the frailties of creation and the sins of humanity. Jesus knew what it was to stub his toe when he took a body. He did not know that in heaven. He knew what it was to wake up tired. He did not know that in heaven. He knew what it was to become hungry. Or as he said on the cross, I thirst. He did not know thirst in heaven. He did all of that for you. What would you do to give up all thirst? If you could somehow live where there was no thirst and no hunger and no exhaustion and no tiredness and no weakness. He had that and he gave it up for you. When he said, I will do what the father commanded. He was bowing to all of these weights. He said he would suffer by living as a man in a sinful world. He said that he would endure every torture of the cross. He said that he would bear the infinite wrath of God. Number nine or so. He said he would go down into the grave and the place of the dead. He said he would rise from the dead. He said he would give out gifts to his people. And then he said, yes, Father, I will even persevere in praying for all those people. Have you ever pondered the fact that if two people speak to you at the same time, you're confused? But Jesus can hear the prayers of all his people at the same time, all hours of day and night. And he takes those prayers and prays for them. He perseveres in praying for each and every one of his sheep. That includes the weak ones who need constant attention. That includes the strong ones. He took the weight and responsibility to return to the world to end all, just, all injustice. He took the weight on himself to sit as the judge of all the earth. Acts 17 verse 31. God has appointed one man to be the judge. Now, I just want to ask you, does your heart give an answer back of saying, yes, yes, yes. Does your heart say amen? Does your heart say, oh, talk more of this. Don't stop. I know the other church is coming in at 10 o'clock, but don't stop. I wish we could go on this way. George Whitfield, we covered him on Tuesday night at the theology class. He sometimes preaches for two to three hours. Is your heart right now saying, I know I'm tired, I've got to cook, I've got my children, but if it weren't for those things, oh, that I could just think and look and love Christ more. That's the mark of saving faith. You are surely lost. You are surely outside of Christ, children. Every child, look at me. If you're under 20, look at my eyes. You are. Are not a believer if you have no joy or hope when you hear about Christ and what He did for you. You see, it's the mark of saving faith that when you hear about Christ, there's an answering call inside of you. If there's nothing that answers and stirs up happiness for Jesus, then even if you're a young child, you don't yet know what it means to be saved. But maybe, and I hope this is happening because we pray and preach for this. Maybe you are saying to yourself, that's me. God's putting faith and love and hope in Christ in my heart. Mothers and fathers, pray for this among your children. And do all you can to have them in an atmosphere where they will have Christ presented to them. But notice that he will fulfill these details exactly. He will do what the Father commands, but he will do it just so, thusly. Precisely, exactly. These promises that were made before the foundation of the world will come into reality. Every single one of them. We don't have time to look at, but let me just summarize Hebrews 9, verses 14 to 20. Hebrews 9, verses 14 to 20 are a description of the new covenant. And in that description, Hebrews 9, it says, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself to God. By the way, notice that. Christ could not die by himself without the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ offered himself to God by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he could remove the stain of sin that the blood of bulls and goats and the offerings of cows could not remove. And then it says this, because God had determined that the covenant, that is the new covenant, would be in force... From the death of the one who made the covenant. Did you hear that? These are strange terms to you because you're not used to thinking this way. But we have to learn to think like a Christian. And the the way to think like a Christian is to read the Bible. Hebrews 9 says, The Father, Son, and Spirit made an agreement before the foundation of the world. But that agreement was not in force. It was not active and living and powerful until the one who made it died. Which is why the blood of cows in the old covenant... They were just pictures of some day. How can this happen? The Jews were boggled. We can't understand. It's beyond us. The angels are amazed. How can this happen? We wish we could know. What? He's taking a body? He's going to die in the place of sinners? This is too amazing. It's too much for us. I turn back from the light. It's blinding my eyes. The new covenant is when Christ himself satisfied all the demands of the law, all the requirements of the covenant, And then died himself to bring it into full effect. Hebrews 9, 14 to 20. You see, he did exactly every line, even to the point of experiencing death. These are further proofs that the Christian religion is true. Further proofs that the Christian religion are true. Who could make this up? Read the Greek myths. Our family is reading Homer's Odyssey right now. Men can make that up. It's a fun story. Men can make up what Zeus do because Zeus acts like a man. All those gods, they act like men. Who could invent this? That the Father, Son, and Spirit were happy without you. And they made you to exalt them. And they allowed sin so that their grace would be known. And then God made the plan to send himself into human flesh to die for sinners. Who could invent this? It's not possible. No one writes a story like that where men are all bad and God is all good. If you read the stories of the world's religions, they all come out so that basically men aren't that bad. But Christianity says no. The hero of this story is God. And that is why I tell you that the one true religion or the one true church is that which preaches and exalts the new covenant. The church or religion that picks up these doctrines and brings them before your eyes and before the eyes of your children, the church that prays this way, that's a true church. Have you been in a true church? Maybe not. Because they're not common. Where are the churches that are exalting in the life and death of Christ? Where are the churches that are exalting in the obedience of Christ? If they're there, I don't know them. Tell me. I have put out this challenge constantly. Tell me the church where the, the ministry on the Sunday is consistently drawing people to the obedience of the Son. Show me and I will gladly unite with that man. Until I know that, We must go on planting a godly church. Christ's obedience was both active and passive. By active we mean he obeyed all the laws for 33 years. You remember the law about loving God? He obeyed that for 33 years. 52 weeks in the year. 168 hours per week. He loved God constantly with all his heart. All his soul. All his mind and all his strength. And then his passive obedience. What is his passive obedience? Does anyone know? His passive obedience is when he submitted to death. So it is the righteousness that he earned by obeying the law and the righteousness that he earned by dying. He gives both to his people. Have you ever trusted in the active and the passive obedience of Jesus? That's what it means to be saved. He obeyed the law for me. And further, he took the penalty of the law for me. And so I close with this. His obedience was proactive. Arise. Let us go from here. He's now going to stand up to meet this lion. The lion of Judah will meet the lion who ravages the world. The angel of the Lord will outshine the angel of light. The king of kings will slay the dragon. The prince of peace will meet the prince of the power of the air. The incarnate truth will confront the father of lies. The greatest of 10,000 will submit himself to the worthless one, the Belial. The holy one of God will endure the Lord of filth, Beelzebub. The man of sorrows will confront and overthrow the demon of false joy. He does this. He chooses to go. And the disciples have a role to play in this as well. Notice that the disciples must also go with him. Arise, let us go. Go. He's going to conquer, but there is something you must do. We believe in monergism. That means one person does the work. Christ did the work of dying for his people. The Father did the work of choosing his people. The Spirit does the work of drawing and calling and regenerating his people. But there is something for you to do. You must hear his voice when it says, arise. And you must get up and follow him. Are you doing that? He was proactive to start, he's already on the path. Where are you at? I lay this before you right now. The obedience of the Son of God. He wants the entire world to know because it's public. He does exactly all the commands of the Father because it's a precise obedience. And it's proactive. He takes the first step. He planned it at the beginning. And when Satan even draws near, he says, we're not waiting for him. Let's go meet him on the battle. Brothers and sisters, look at that obedience. Love that obedience. Pray that you would cling to it because it is your only hope in life or in death. And let your soul go out in all of its faculties of love to Jesus. And then we would know that God's word has done its work. Let's close our eyes. Before I pray today, I'd ask us all to close our eyes and to meditate on what we've heard and pray in our hearts.